0: Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lands. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. With the prominence of the ark before us, the ark of God, 1 Samuel chapter 5, you might ask the question going into this particular study, why the ark? What is the significance of of the Ark of the Covenant. Why did God instruct an Ark to be made? Why was it constructed in the way it was with the gold and the angel's wings touching and the mercy seat and so forth? And we do know that one of the things that God conveyed through the Ark was His presence. And within the Ark itself, there came to rest three things. Do you remember what they were? The Ten Commandments were put into the Ark. There was a jar of manna. And what was the third thing? The staff, the staff that budded. Aaron's staff or Moses' staff that budded. So you think about those things. Think about the jar of manna. Uh, Jesus ultimately said the jar of manna or the manna miracle itself pointed to him. He is the bread of God which came down from heaven. If you think about the power of the staff that God took the shepherd's staff, And he transformed it, something very ordinary, into something very powerful, because it was just a staff, but now it'd become the rod of God. God would use that for his mighty power. And of course, the Ten Commandments were in there as well. Now when you look at the New Covenant, and you look at the work of Jesus Christ, we know that there's a Greek word in Romans 3.25, hilasterion is the Greek word, and it speaks of the mercy seat. And the the high priest would go in and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And here's the picture. The Ten Commandments within the chest itself testify that we fail. The law is a schoolmaster, what? To drive us to Christ. And the mercy seat is there. The blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat. And Jesus Christ In the new covenant picture is our mercy seat and the law no longer testifies against you that you're guilty before God because the blood of the lamb, the perfect lamb, washes you clean because his perfect righteousness fulfills the law because he is the bread of God. Think of the jar of manna. Because he is the power of God, manifest. This ark uh, had great uh, prominence as we mentioned and it is prominent in chapters 4, 5, and 6 of 1 Samuel. And it's going to travel around a little bit. We know that the Ark has been captured now in the last uh, chapter that we looked at. And Pastor Chris pointed out that in many ways the Jewish people saw the Ark as more of like a religious uh, symbol or some sort of thing that they could just call upon. And they almost had moved God away from the Ark. Instead of it being the Ark of the Covenant, it was the Ark of my convenience. It was the Ark, when I needed it, I could just get this object in the right place. And Pastor Chris was walking to his car last Wednesday and I said, Pastor Chris, you, I, I don't know if this is the case or not, but I think what you were saying tonight, and I don't know if this is, this is where this came from, but don't put God in a box. Yeah. You know how we, we often say that in the Christian life? Don't put God in a box. Well, that's what Israel was basically doing. They were connecting him just to the the box itself instead of to the bigness of God and who he actually is. With that thought in mind, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we come to it now, we come with humility, expectation, because we know your, your word is filled with your power because it's breathed out by Almighty God. And it is profitable. We have come here tonight to hear from you, we ask, Lord, that as we look at the ark and we look at the incredible chapter—it's really one of the funniest chapters in the Bible, actually—we're um, going to see Your power on display. We're going to see that no one could put You in a box. But, Lord, You are You are testifying here that You are the God of all above all gods, the King above all kings. You shall have no other gods. You say before me. Don't make an idol to bow down or worship it. Lord, idols are a very real reality in our world. Our hearts indeed can be idol-making factories. Forgive us for the times that we put idols above you. Lord, this world is filled with idols, things that we allow to take precedence over you. Lord, your power and your majesty is unmatched. Let us seek you for who you are. Not superstitions, not idols, but the God who made us. Thank you that you've made yourself so accessible to us. Thank you that you came down to meet us in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you paid our ransom. Tonight, as we look at this account, may you draw us close to you. Help us to apply your word as Pastor Chris prayed. We, we bless your holy name and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, 1 Samuel 5 in verse 1 says, Now the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. So here now is the major moment where the Ark, this most sacred vessel, remember the Ark of the Covenant was actually the, the thing that was behind the curtain. This was in the Holy of Holies. This was the very special of all special vessels there in the temple and it had been taken. At the center of the taking of the ark are two men who have been defying God. Their names are, I'm going to say it, Hophni and Phinehas. (laughs) (laughs) And so they have been messing with God. They've been defying God. Their father, though he did attempt kind of weakly to correct them, really never held them truly accountable or called them to account. And their, their um, shenanigans there in the temple uh, are reflective of what's happening, I think, in the nation. Remember when we go way back to chapter one, we see a woman named Hannah. Her name means grace and she's barren. And remember how we said that Hannah is a picture of Israel, barren. They need the life of God breathed back into them, if you will. They've gone through that period of the judges and everybody's doing what's right in his own eyes. There's no king in Israel. And certainly God is not really being treated as their king They've got these two priests who are really jokers. They have defiled everything that you would consider holy. And they're the ones that are connected now to the movement of the ark. Um, Defying God, one writer says, is not something that looks particularly stupid. And so it is rare to meet a person who is afraid of defying God. There's something about this story with which we are very familiar. It's a story about people playing a game we all know too well. The Israelites were presuming on, and the Philistines were defying the power of God. Now I would say Hophni and Phineas were defying the power of God. The Philistines defied the power of God, even though they were fearful of the ark. Remember, they decided to muster up courage, and they said, we're going to fight, even if we have to go down swinging, we're going to fight. And the Israelites just thought, well, if the, if the, if the uh, ark is here, then we're good. We're fine, let's just get the object here. And they started celebrating, if you go back to 1 Samuel 4, Look at verses 3 and 4. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us, take ourselves, uh, let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who sits above the cherubim and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Verse 11, chapter 4. The Ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, died. The Ark of God was captured, and it was taken, if you'll notice in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, the Philistines took the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Ebenezer was in the western foothills of Israelite territory, Ashdod was about 30 miles to the southwest, close to the coast, and in the heart of Philistine territory. Uh, Sean, if you don't mind, I think you have the map there that you can put up, and it's going to be very difficult to see. But what you're going to notice is on the coast, uh, where the stars are, you have the five cities of the Philistines. Um, They're right over here. And what's going to happen is basically the ark is going to make a bit of a circuit into these Philistine cities. And they're more on the coast. And m- remember last week it was pointed out to us that they were, the Philistines were a seafaring people and they had these different cities and they had lords over these different cities. And so the Philistines, 1 Samuel 5, verse 2, took the ark of God and they brought it to the house of Dagon, 1 Samuel 5, 2, and they set it by Dagon. Now in Daniel 1, verse 2, it says, And the Lord God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. This is Daniel 1, 2. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, which I think was Marduk. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. What would happen in ancient times, you can find this in history and you can look at commentaries on these books, is that... When you went to war with a people, the ancient armies would battle under the flags of the banners of their gods. When they would march on each other, they would be holding flags or banners, but their flags or banners would depict some image of their god. And they they would, in essence, be thinking that your god is fighting against our god, and whoever wins this war, the, the army that wins, their god is stronger than your god. And they would often take a defeated idol and they would take it out of the temple of the defeated foe and bring it into the temple of their god. Remember, the ancient world was filled with concepts of pantheons of gods, uh, hundreds and thousands of gods, gods for everything. Remember, in Egypt, each of the plagues that Yahweh uh, administers against Egypt is a plague against a deity of Egypt. The Nile River turns to blood. Why? Because they believe the Nile is a god. And as you go through all of these plagues, you find out that Yahweh, God, the true God of all the earth, is uh, administering justice against the false God. And he says, You're, That God's dead, that God's dead, that God's dead. Oh, look, your God's bleeding. The Nile turning to blood. And here's part of the irony. They were wanting to take the babies and throw the Hebrew males into the river, into their God's mouth, if you will. And God says, through the first plague, I just killed your God. It just turned to blood. And so what you see in ancient battles is when the, the deity was captured, if you will, and in this case it's represented by the ark, they would bring that captured or defeated foe into the, into the temple of the, their God, And they would say, now your God's going to be part of the pantheon of our God. And not not only that, they would say, now your God is subservient to our God. And this would kind of match what would happen when you took prisoners of war. You would march the people from their land to your land. You would change their names. You would indoctrinate them. You would... Uh, take them into your system, but not only would you take that you would take their you would take their pride away, you would take their national identity away, you would rename them into names that represented your religion and your God, and what happened to their God would mirror often what would happen to their people, slavery and now subservience to this other people group. So what do they do? Very common in the ancient world. they take the ark. They bring it into the house of Dagon and they say, Now, Yahweh or Jehovah, you are now subservient to Dagon. Uh-oh. We all know this is not going to end very well for Dagon. Now, who is Dagon? In Canaanite mythological texts, Baal is sometimes called the son of Dagon. Dagon is mentioned in a couple of verses I'll take you to in a moment. He was known as the chief god of the ancient Philistines. There are two uh, arguments in terms of etymology of his name. When you talk about etymology of a word, you talk about the origin of a word. How, How can you trace the meaning of a word? Well, in studies of etymology, there are two ideas connected to Dagon's name, that he is either the fish god or he is the grain god. What they would do is they would often attach these gods to some sort of fertility blessing or something that he would impart to you. If you appeased him, then he would uh, give you some sort of blessing, crops, etc. He had two famous temples. They were located in Gaza and Ashdod, which are part of the five Philistine cities on the map. These ancient texts show that Dagon was being worshipped, get this, before Abraham entered Canaan, about 2000 B.C., Dagon continued to be worshipped by the Canaanites up until the time of Christ. There's even a reference to Dagon in the book of 1st Maccabees, which is in the intertestamental period between Malachi, that's Malachi in the Italian, and Matthew. Like the myths of so many pagan religions, Canaanite stories claim that Baal came to prominence by defeating other gods. One of Baal's enemies was Apparently the sea monster known as Lotan. The Old Testament's reference to Leviathan corresponds to this word. But in the Bible, Leviathan is simply a powerful creature in the sea that man cannot control. And not like a Lotan or a pagan god in the form of a twisting serpent. Baal's mistress or lover was known as Anat. She was the goddess of war, love, and fertility. She was the virgin goddess who conceives and was also the victor over Baal's enemies. Now listen to this, because Baal's supposed to be the son of Dagon. With the help of Shapash, the sun or luminary, Anat rescued Baal from Mot or Mat, the god of death. Her victories in battles were vicious. She is described as up to her hips in gore with the heads and hands of her enemies stacked high. Uh, One rendering of this says that she would stack the palms and heads of her enemies. If you've read this story before, you know that the second time when Dagon falls in his temple, all that's left of him is his uh, torso. He has lost his palms and his head has been chopped off. Do you think God has a sense of humor? I think he's taking some of these pagan false stories and saying, oh, you think you had victory over your enemies in this way? Let me show you what's happened to your daddy, <laughs> Baal. I just cut off his head and his palms are gone. Uh, I want to say a word about the sad reality of the Coptic Christians that were uh, slain by ISIS. Um, it is a sad, tragic Situation that is happening in our world. And I know that many of you are praying that our government will call it what it is. I'm going to say this publicly call it what it is and wake up to what we need to do instead of dancing around the issue. Um, Anyway, I'm going to leave it at that. Now, the mention of um, this particular god, Dagon. As I, as I said, if you do a concordance search on him and you take a look at verses that talk about him, there's two places you want to look. So let's go back to um, the book of Judges, chapter 16. Just, uh, just go back one book, Judges 16. Look at verse 23. Judges 16, 23. Now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, Judges 16.23, and to rejoice, for they said, Our God has given who? Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country, who has slain many of us. The credit for the defeat of Samson under the spell of Delilah is ultimately given to Dagon. That's when all the lords assemble and God renews uh, Mo, um, Samson's strength. So you got first and second Samuel to your right, first and second Kings and first and second chronicles. Go to first Chronicles chapter one. This is the other reference to Dagon, first Chronicles one. In verse uh, First Chronicles 1 chapter 10. First Chronicles 1:10. Excuse me, I keep saying 1:10. I'm sorry. First Chronicles 10 verse 1. <laughs> First Chronicles 10:1. Now the Philistines, First Chronicles 10:1, fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines, and fell slain on Mount Goboah. And the Philistines closely pursued Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan. Abinadab, Shua, the sons of Saul. 1 Chronicles 10.3 And the battle became heavy against Saul, and the archers overtook him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he likewise fell on his sword and died. Thus Saul died with his three sons, all uh, and all those of his house died together. When all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that they had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. And it came about the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Goboa. So they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent messengers around the land of the Philistines to carry the good news, would you notice, to their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the house of their gods and fastened his head in the house of Dagon. When all Jabesh Gilead heard that all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose. They took away the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons. They brought them to Jabesh, buried their bones under the oak in Jabesh and, fastened, excuse me, and fasted seven days. And so Saul died for his trespass, which he committed against the Lord, because of the word of the Lord, which he did not keep, and also because he asked counsel of the Median, making inquiry of it, and did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore he killed him and turn the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. I just want you to see that, if you go back to 1 Samuel, that the prominence of Dagon among the Philistines and these things that occur uh, by his hand, pretty radical. Credit is given to him uh, for these victories over God's people. And now, where is the Ark of the Covenant? It's right in the house of Dagon. (laughs) The fish god. Uh, there's some history when you look at Dagon that does connect uh, the idea of Dagon to the book of Jonah. The uh, Ninevites were supposed to have worshipped a god or a goddess named Nanshi or Nanshi. And uh, this was supposed to be a fish god uh, connected perhaps to Dagon and. And what's the story of Jonah? He gets swallowed up by a great fish. And there was some legend in the area that the whole the whole area was established. Nineveh, the capital of Assyria was established by a man who came out of the sea and taught him what they taught them what they should do. And so when Jonah shows up being regurgitated out of the belly of a fish, do you think that he's got the Ninevites' attention? Their whole life and, and religion is built upon the, these fish stories, and I, I literally mean <laughs> fish stories, right? And so Jonah shows up in this miraculous way and uh, he begins to preach 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. He begins to preach about the truth of the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God of mighty power. The, the book of Exodus in Chapter fifteen verse eleven says, Who is like you among the gods after he routed Pharaoh's army, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Exodus fourteen thirty one says, When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. God is a God of incredible power. Now, you can experience His power in a couple different ways. They're optional. They're on the menu. You can experience His power via the Holy Spirit. You can experience His life-changing power and new life in Christ. You can become a new creation in Jesus Christ. You can experience the breath of God, the power of God, the deliverance of God. Or, if you want to choose on the other side of the menu you can choose the power of God to be judged by God thank you for listening to today's program if you'd like to listen to this message again learn more about our church in Corona or to access archived messages go to livingtruthradio.org and click on the church tab you can follow us on Instagram at livingtruthcorona or download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app on Apple and Android devices Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported ministry. You can partner with us by donating at livingtruthradio.org This is 1 Samuel chapter 5 and as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 5 it's, it's in many ways a humorous chapter because the ark of God has been put into the Philistine temple and the God there is Dagon, half man half fish God and um, he was supposed to be one of the big wigs, you know, one of the, one of their, uh, you know, great gods. And, uh, he's a God with a small G of course, because there is no other God by nature than the true God of the Bible. Certainly the Bible does acknowledge that there are Lord's many, God's many in the 10 commandments. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. The God of the Bible is not acknowledging other gods that are equal with him or that are even real. He is simply acknowledging that there are idols that there were a pantheon pantheons of gods in different cultures gods and goddesses in fact that people worshiped and bowed down to very few atheists back in the day and so what people did was they they worshiped the sun and the moon and the stars and the seas and the birds and you name it we can see this in the life of egypt when god brings the plagues on the egyptians and each of the plagues is specifically tailored against a false god of Egypt, and now the 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 Ark of God ends up in the temple of Dagon, and in a, in a humorous scene, Dagon falls <laughs> before the Ark, and uh, you know there he is, broken and basically worshiping before the true God. The false God falls before the true God, and we can see the God, small G, fall. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This picture of Dagon falling before the true God of the Bible takes on a wider significance because everyone who does not bow their knee uh, and call Jesus Lord, and and I'm talking about making a decision to make him Lord and Savior of your life, repenting of your sin and receiving him as Lord and Savior, eventually will bow before him but in brokenness because he is the true God. The God of the Bible represented in the three persons of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, One God in three persons. Um, This is the true God. And this is who Dagon (laughs) bowed before. Dagon wasn't real. His statue fell before the true God of the Bible.